and they have just two simple rhetorical questions followed by a simple proverb from Jesus. Um, but I hope that the brevity will not deter us from taking to heart the message within. I do believe it's important for us, um, and, and we're never to take the master's instructions lightly. He is our God. The parable is Luke 6, 39, and, uh, and we'll tack on verse 40 as well. Luke 6, 39, in my translation, says, And he spoke a parable unto them, saying, A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? And immediately after he gives that parable, in verse 40, uh, Jesus provides uh, a proverb as a sort of an addendum, a brief addendum to the, the parable. He says, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. All right. On the surface, not a lot to digest here, right? Jesus' parable is super short, pretty simple. Two imaginary, nameless blind men are walking around, and neither of them can see, so they both fall into a pit because they're blind. All right. Got it. Let's see. We got uh, 45 more minutes to cover here. Well, let's see how I can fill the time. <laughs> well, if we're going to digest Jesus' message to us, um, for starters, we better sure, be sure that we know who he's talking about. Who are these blind men? Uh, One's a follower, one's a leader. Uh, who are they? Um, why is the f first blind man following the second blind man? Uh, who does that? Um, why were they hanging out around a dangerous pit anyway? They were blind. They probably should have known better than that. And why did Jesus feel the need to tell us this? And honestly, the passage doesn't spell out any of that for us. Um, this is Luke chapter 6, um, is a uh, bit of a long chapter, and it's filled with just teaching after teaching after teaching from Jesus, most of which are pretty famous. Y'all would probably recognize some of them. The, the Beatitudes are in Luke chapter 6. Um, he, he uh, uh, before and after our verses gives some more famous teachings about hypocrisy, about taking the log out of your own eye before you uh, take a... Uh, 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 splinter out of, out of your friend's eye, some, some famous things that we're probably familiar with, but they're all just kind of given one after the other, and, and there's really no additional explanation given to us. Um, but if we, uh, we're fortunate to have the whole counsel of God in the Bible, and, uh, and if we look at Matthew chapter 15, I think we might be able to piece together who Jesus is talking about because he happens to use the exact same language on a separate occasion. Um, so if you would, um, maybe we'll just turn to Matthew chapter 15, and I'm going to read the first 14 verses there. It says, Then Jesus was approached by Pharisees and scribes from Jer Jerusalem who asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. It's kind of gross. Anyway, he answered them, Why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of a father or mother must be put to death. But you say, Whoever tells his father or mother whatever benefit you might have received from me is a gift committed to the temple, then he does not have to honor his father. In this way, you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. Hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. 
Then summoning the crowd, he told them, listen and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And then here's where we're going to focus in, verse 12. Then the disciples came up to him and said, do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? He replied, every plant that my heavenly father didn't plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit, right? The same exact parable, the same analogy that Jesus gives here. And now we have a very clear uh, uh, target of, of his message. So this seems to be a separate incident from what we can tell. The context of it is different. There's a bit of a different storyline in the background. Um, but the similarity of the message, um, I think, uh, would lead us to reasonably believe that probably Jesus was talking about the Pharisees. And most of the time he had nasty things to say about anybody he was talking about the Pharisees. We've, we see this repeatedly throughout the gospel. The Pharisees were the corrupt, spiritually blind religious leaders of the day. Um, and, and when Jesus came, he spoke against them. He spoke against the religious establishment, and he spoke against them plainly and harshly often. Um, he, he really didn't pull any punches. He didn't try to bury his criticism of them under a mountain of nuance or a facade of winsomeness or false affection. He really just came right out and said exactly what he knew to be true of them, that they were blind guides, they were hypocrites, and they were liars, they were far from God, and that anyone who wanted to please God should steer well clear of them. That's what he called them. They were spiritually blind guides. They had set themselves up in positions of authority. They claimed to be worth following, but they were themselves blind as a bat, and they were headed towards a dangerous pit. And Jesus spoke plainly to all of them, steer clear. These are blind guides. I do wonder... Uh, sometimes what it would look like if Jesus came and said the same things today as he did in that day. What if he were here among us? What if he was calling out the socially acceptable leaders of the day, people with big public platforms who carried societal clout, and, but who were unqualified to lead God's kingdom? How, how do you think people would respond to that in today's society? How do you think that would be received? It's a hypothetical question. I don't know if there's a definitive right or wrong answer. Um, maybe there would be a big revival in the church. Maybe people would stop following false teachers. Maybe they would worship God properly and take their faith seriously. Maybe they would see the error of their ways, and we would all cease to care so much what the godless society around us thinks we should do and tells us we should do, and we would just start to obey God without regard for what society says. Maybe we would all start to ignore the blind guides, the people spiritually unqualified that we shouldn't be taking advice from. It's possible. But if I'm honest with you, I kind of tend to doubt it. Anybody with me? You know what I think is more likely? I think a lot of people who follow the unqualified leaders that Jesus would call out would be really put off by it. I think a few true disciples might heed his warnings. They might follow his words. But I'll bet the large crowds would lose patience with him pretty quickly. And I think they'd oppose him. I think they'd criticize him, and they'd call him nasty and unloving for the mean things that he was saying about the blind guides. They'd tell him that those blind guides were his brothers and that he should be a lot more gracious to them. Um, 
they tell him that all that negativity was a bad testimony and that, you know, stop being a culture warrior, Jesus. Just uh, fall in line, be a little bit more winsome, and probably seeker-sensitive. They might even suggest that Jesus' behavior was unchristlike. Chew on that one for a second. <laughs> I think most people wouldn't put up with the real teachings of the real Jesus because I think very few people in our society worship the real Jesus to begin with. You see, a lot of people out there will tell you that they follow Jesus, but when you dig a little deeper and when you start asking questions, you will, file, you will find that they actually just follow a characterized version of Jesus. Um, they follow a Jesus that they can bend and contort to match all their preconceived notions of how they want to live. And so that Jesus requires nothing of them. It doesn't require them to change anything about the way that they live. It doesn't require them to admit their flaws. I think our society today worships a Jesus who is cartoonishly gentle and kind of like a pacifistic wallflower. You know, a Jesus who would never cast judgments or say harsh things like this to people. And I think when you present them the real Jesus of the Bible and the hard teachings that the real Jesus gave, I think those people are often quick to find that they, they don't like that Jesus. In fact, they find him pretty distasteful, and they don't really want a whole lot to do with him. That's a lot of my opinion. Um, but if you think I'm being ridiculous here and that all that sounds silly and far-fetched, just wait until you find out what the crowds did to Jesus the first time that he came. Luke 23. <clears throat> Then their whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate. Speaking of Jesus, they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payments of taxes to, Caesar's and say, to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. See what they said? He was sharing misinformation. Verse 5, But they kept insisting, He stirs up the people, teaching all throughout Judea, from Galilee, where he started even to hear. He was inciting violence. He was stirring up a riot. We got to shut him up. And they would not put up with him. See, the, the pacifistic wallflower Jesus that ne never says anything uh, harsh or, or, or says anything that would cause people to be uncomfortable, that Jesus wouldn't have been executed, but the real Jesus was. Verse 18, then they all cried out together, take this man away, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. So divisive were Jesus' teachings against the leaders of the day that the crowd would sooner tolerate a murderer like Barabbas than put up with the things that he was saying. They would not let him talk. They would wished him dead. I would submit to you that the world today is in many ways the same place that it was back then. I think uh, Jesus' diagnosis was as accurate then, as accurate today as it was then. Uh, that is, that it is full of spiritually blind people who don't know where they're going or what they're doing. And these blind people have gained a false confidence because they follow around some guides who have lots of credentials and claim to be knowledgeable but the guides are just as blind as the people following them. 
And so what you have is the blind leading the blind, and they're all headed for a pit together, just like Jesus taught. The blind people are so convinced of their self-sufficiency, worse, and they have, the blind guides have the blind followers so convinced of their leadership credentials that when you try to tell them they're running towards a dangerous pit, they refuse to tolerate your warnings. They just don't want to hear about it. The only logical conclusion that we can find is that, in some sense, people are willfully blind. They don't really want to be helped, for the most part. They prefer to remain as they are, to remain blind, to keep stumbling around as they have been. And I think that's exactly what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 3. We like John 3.16. A few verses after that, in John 3.19, he says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who hates evil hates the light. Or, I'm sorry, everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that their deeds may not be exposed, right? This is a little bit different phrasing of the same analogy, right? Jesus says that light, which is this incredible thing that helps you see clearly where you're going and what you're doing, has come into the world, and people wanted absolutely none of it. They would rather be in the darkness. They'd rather stumble around, blind themselves, following other blind people. They'd rather be in darkness. And so I think that's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, you're following these people, and they're headed for a pit. And if you go with them, you're going to go there too. And, and so it's a serious warning. It's a serious condemnation of, of the leadership of the day. It's a fear, serious call to, to discern wisely who is worth following, who am I being influenced by, where am I headed? What's the solution to all of it? I mean, metaphorically, it's fairly simple. Stop following the blind guides, right? In practice, I think um, there's a few stages to the solution. Um, I've outlined uh, four for this morning. Uh, I think the very first step that, that needs to happen if we want to remedy this dangerous situation of blind people following blind people into pits is that blind people need to recognize the danger of their blind condition, right? You need to recognize that stumbling in the, around in the dark, around deep wells that have been dug, can get you hurt. They need to recognize that there's a pit ahead, and they need a course correction, and they need it urgently. And, and that step, um, if I can translate, is invariably the working of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction in an unrepentant heart, right? It is, it is the working of a Holy Spirit to come into the darkness uh, of, of someone's heart who does not know God and to bring conviction and to bring them the recognition that like, hey, I'm missing something here. I really need something that I don't have, and I don't know what I'm doing here in life. That's the first thing. Without that first step, there can be no progress, right? And so we ought to be careful that we never take the Holy Spirit out of the solution. Secondly, I think spiritually blind people need a guide who can help them see what they cannot themselves see. They need to stop following the blind guides, the other blind people, and they need 
to get some advice from somebody who can actually see clearly. It is a, a tremendous tragedy for a spiritually blind person to recognize their own blindness, to be convicted that they're missing something, that they need something extra, and to have no one around them who can navigate them to, away from the danger into, uh, into a better place. That is the function of the church. That's why we exist as the church. We exist to testify to the truth, according to Scripture. We exist to be the hands and feet of Jesus um, to lost and blind sinners. And we exist to point them to the one that can restore their sight. And that brings us to the third point in this set of solutions. I think most of all, what spiritually blind people need is they need to be guided to a physician that can restore their sight, right? To speak plainly, that physician is Jesus. We've already mentioned Jesus came to testify against the religious establishment. He came to, uh, to testify against the blind guides. But we would be remiss if we failed to also note that he came to testify about his own power to save, right? He came doing miracles, literally giving sight to the blind on multiple occasions, and then teaching things like this. It wasn't a coincidence. He was suggesting it. He was declaring it. He said, I can give you sight. I can speak light into the darkness. The solution is me. John 8, 12. Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the only one who can speak, like, speak light into the darkness and give sight to the blind. He's the only solution worth trying. And so I hope if you hear nothing else today, I hope you'll hear that you don't need to spend your life stumbling around and blindly following people into dangerous pits. Jesus has the power and the grace within himself to redeem you from that. We sing about it, don't we? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see, right? He gives sight to the blind. He can help you see where you're going. He can, he can navigate you around the dangerous pits of life and the ultimate pit of, of eternity separated away from him. It can help you see. I hope and pray that amazing grace verse is true for each of you today. Um, Jesus came to warn about bad influences. He came to warn about blind guides. He came to um, convict us and to, to help us have a heart check of whether we're following the right people. Um, but even more than that, he came to offer you healing in himself. He came to give you sight. Um, and that's the first and most important lesson for the day. I think there is one more step in the solution. You might think that if you're blind, getting your sight back is the, is the last step. <laughs> um, but I think there's one more, and it comes uh, after the sight has been restored. And the final step in the solution is for the man who was once spiritually blind, but now given sight to actually follow Jesus and to be molded into his image. That's the lifelong process that every Christian undertakes as they follow after their Savior and seek to live in his image. When your spiritual sight is restored to you, God indwells you with his Holy Spirit, and he begins this work of sanctification in your life to make you progressively more like him.
to make you follow after something good rather than following blind guides into dangerous places. With this, you further develop your newfound spiritual sight. You learn to see both yourself and the rest of the world through God's point of view, and in doing so, you become like him. That's really the work of sanctification, isn't it? When you're really sanctified, number one, you're not sinning so often, but when you're really sanctified, you can approach any situation and see it the way that God sees it, right? You see it and you think what God would have thought. That's, that's what sanctification is all about. That's the end game. That's a process that's ongoing. It continues um, as you are refined and as, you, as long as you live and it's uh, completely fulfilled uh, and, and finally completed when you enter eternity and you get to be fully present with the Lord there. Then, then the teacher, the, the disciple becomes like his teacher, like it says in verse 40. So that's the solution. We've got conviction is the critical first step from the Holy Spirit. Conviction leads to um, an opportunity for proper spiritual guidance where the church can come alongside a blind man and say, hey, look, there's danger up ahead. You need a course correction. Follow me. Come with me. I can point you to someone who can help you. They point them to Jesus. Jesus can restore the sight. That's step number three. And after Jesus restores the sight, he beckons the newly healed disciple, and he says, come, follow me. That's the process. Each step is critical. I think there's some additional takeaways. Um, Lesson number two, you always become like the people you follow, so you ought to choose wisely. That is certainly a message that Jesus was giving here. And in much the same way that Christians are sanctified and can become more like Christ as they follow after him, you can be discipled in all kinds of other ways. Some of them are neutral, some of them are not good. In general, anyone you follow after, anyone you hang around, they will be influencing you. Um, Anecdotally, many of you know that I um, just recently finished up graduate school um, after many long years of studying and toil. Um, I took great pleasure in watching the Gamecocks victory last night because I just spent nine years at that university. I'm as invested as as any of you. I challenge you to beat that. Um, between four years in undergrad and five more as a grad student, um, I've, I've been there and done that. One of the in- interesting things about graduate school um, was that it's structured totally differently than undergrad. Um, I don't know how many of you have been through like a research-based graduate program. Um, if you have, you probably know some of what, I'll, what I'm talking about here. Um, if you've only ever had undergraduate, your, your experience is a little bit different than, than what you get in graduate school. So in undergrad, You've got a full slate of courses, right? You're taking four or five, maybe even six courses every semester. Um, And really your primary job is show up to class, pass your exams, get good grades, finish the coursework, you're good to go. You do that for four years. They give you a nice little diploma and send you on your happy way. Um, You may have an academic advisor in undergrad, but um, typically those academic advisors don't have much to do with you. Like you go and you mandatorily meet with them once every semester and you're like, here's what classes I want to take. And they're like, yeah, I'll sign. And then you, you go on and you take those classes. Or, or if they're a good advisor, maybe they'll be like, oh no, you should take this one first before that one. 
Um, graduate school is dramatically different than that, um, particularly in a research-based program. In graduate school, you have an academic advisor, just like an undergrad, um, but he is not some aloof faculty member that you meet with once per semester. Um, in graduate school, that man or woman, as the case may be, is your boss. They are your mentor. They are your personal tutor. And it's a very one-on-one -on -one discipleship relationship, if you will. I use discipleship loosely. Obviously, it's a professional context, not a, not a spiritual context. You work for them. You assist them in, in research tasks that they have going on in their lab. Um, whatever project they put you on, you help them uh, get things done there. And in, in return, they meet with you regularly. Um, in my case, it was multiple times per week uh, to check on your progress. They teach you new concepts that you may not already know that you need to know. Um, and they are really there to guide you towards success and to a more complete understanding of the, the field that you're working in. Um, it's extremely personal, it's focused, it's one-on-one, -on -one, it is personal mentorship. Um, and it continues for a very long time, five years in my case. Um, so I did my time in the program. I had a very good advisor. I, I really like the guy. He's nice. He was knowledgeable in his field. He was certainly worth learning from. He was very serious about educating his students. Sometimes if you have a bad advisor, they don't really have the time of day for you. That's not a good position in graduate school. You really need that guy uh, to help you out there. Um, long story. As I got towards the end of the program, I began to notice an interesting phenomenon with my advisor. Um, we, we worked as part of a large project, so we would go to meetings, not just one-on-one, -on -one, but also with much larger groups, 10, 20 people or so. And as we did that, um, different topics would come up. And I frequently found that as different people said different things in the meetings, um, I had all the same opinions and insights as my advisor by the end um, on the topics that came up. We had all of the same strengths and all the same weaknesses. When somebody else would say something, and he would respond, I could practically finish his sentences for him sometimes. Because I had been studying with him for five years full time. And, and uh, you know, even two years in undergrad before that. Like seven years, one-on-one -on -one personal mentorship relationship. You learn a lot about what somebody can just rattle off, right? There's still some things he would know that I don't know. But, but over that time, if there's anything he can just call to mind and, and put out there, I'd pretty well heard it before from him. I think that's exactly, in the spiritual context, what Jesus is discussing in verse 40, right? Back to our parable. A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher, right? It's a testament to a good teacher to be able to clone himself, right? To take everything that he knows and make it something that you know, right? That's a good teacher there. If he can give you all of his own abilities and transfer them to you and make, him like, make you like him, that's a good teacher. The question for us is, who are you following? Who's mentoring you? Who influences you? Who's discipling you? Do you have a spiritual mentor that you talk to? I think a lot of us should, especially at our age. You know, if you're 80 and you don't have a spiritual mentor anymore, well, you've been there and done that. But if you're 25, you should probably have somebody you can talk to. Do you at the very least have some peers that you can go to? That's why we do small groups, guys. I don't know if you got that. We, we hammer it every semester, 
every single semester. You need a small group, right? This is why we do it. That they can encourage you spiritually. They can influence you positively. That they can help you grow. They can guide you into good things. They can all ultimately help you learn and grow faster from the one we're really all following, which is Jesus. Paul offers a, um, a serious warning in 1 Corinthians 15 um, that sometimes the people we hang around are influencing us more than we think they are. 1 Corinthians 15:33, he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. Those are Paul's words. Bad company corrupts good morals, Right? You hang around the wrong crowd, you're going to act like them, whether you like it or not. I don't know anybody's individual situation out there today, at least not all of you. I can guess that some of you, probably at our age, have some lousy friends (laughs) who are pulling you down spiritually and influencing you in ways that aren't good. I've certainly had lousy friends. As part of my own personal development process, I had to let some of those friendships go. And, you know, it's not really easy. Those are your friends. You hang out with them. They know you for years. But if they're dragging you down spiritually, if you're recognizing that, like, hey, intentionally or unintentionally, when I hang out with these people, I'm following after them, and they're influencing me, and it's not drawing me closer to Jesus, um, you might need to cut off that friendship or at least put it on pause for a little while until you're really strong enough that, that you can talk to them and not be influenced you got to stop following the blind guides. Along with that, you could probably use a new set of friends, right? And that's where First Baptist comes in. You, if you need a new set of friends, let me give you some advice. You should be Mr. or Mrs. First Baptist for a little while, right? Show up to everything. One of the great things about this church, we got events like every night of the week. If you really want to get involved... We can get you to, on basketball on Monday nights. We can get you to small group and, and pods Tuesday nights. We can get you to choir or a discipleship class on Wednesday nights. We can get you hanging out with some friends on Thursday nights. And we can get you to a Friday night bonfire at Chris Hutto's house, okay? We got Sunday covered. That's, that's six out of seven days a week. You can immerse yourself in a positive environment and just start showing up, Right? If you don't know how to, like, correct your life, if you're stuck in this negative cycle where you keep following after the wrong people, just (laughs) change your life, right? Show up. Start coming to church. Start being involved in things. Start following around people who can guide you to a better place in life. Navigate you around the pits that can come for you. Final lesson that I've got, and then we'll let it go, and we'll have a a short time. You guys can uh, debrief and discuss at your tables. Final lesson that I marked out of this. God is not impressed by credentials. He's not impressed by social status. He's not impressed by your positions of influence. And we've we've said this um, already in some of the other parables that we've looked at. By any metric of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus was calling blind guides here by any metric of their day, they were qualified to lead, right? They had the premier education. They were trained. They were knowledgeable. They were experienced teachers. They had experience in leadership, 
had experience in governance. They were highly regarded in Jewish society. They knew all the right people. Most of all, they claimed to be enlightened, and they claimed to know the path towards pleasing God, and they were legalistic about it, right? They gave all the laws, and they added to the laws even, and they said, you have to do these things to please God. They had all the credentials. They had all the clout behind them, and they advertised that quite regularly in case you had forgotten it. But empty credentialism is the cover of unqualified leaders and phony experts, okay? Let me tell you from personal experience in academia that not everyone with a fancy degree behind their name is as smart as they would have you believe, okay? There are some real dummies with some real high degrees out there. And most of them, not most of them, some of them are completely full of it. As true in my field, as true in any field, it's also true spiritually, okay? Not everybody with a degree who's been to seminary is going to guide you in the right direction. We've got to be discerning with who we're following after. We've got to test the spirits, and we've got to make sure that when we're listening to somebody, when we're taking spiritual guidance from them, that they're really following after God, and they've really got our best interest in heart, and they're really going to lead us in a direction that contributes to our growth and doesn't drag us down into the pit. All of the Pharisees' credentials were utterly worthless to God. They didn't buy anything. God is not a respecter of persons. The things that we find impressive are not the same things that impress him. The things that we think qualify someone for leadership on earth are not the things that qualify someone for leadership in God's kingdom. And so what he's seeking is not a lot of credentials. It's not a lot of high social clout people who who can walk the walk, or who can talk the talk but don't walk the walk. Um, God is seeking true disciples. That's what he wants. People who will leave the blind guides, who will obey his teaching and recognize the dangers, and, and will leave behind all the vain, self, self-aggrandizing, vain self-aggrandizing titles and credentials, and who will follow him with humility, right? He wants people with a right heart. He's calling those disciples from everywhere, from every class, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every demographic, rich and poor, popular and unpopular, leaders and outcasts alike. All are welcome at the table, but the requirement is that you humble yourself and that you follow him. So that's my challenge for you today. That's my challenge for myself today. Um, That's the, the call for all of us is to follow Jesus, is to learn from him, It's to point others to him, and it's to seek him out above all else. And I pray that he will help us to do that um, and and to help us to see clearly, to leave our spiritual blindness in our past, uh, to navigate around the pits, and and to help us to follow him as we leave. Let's uh, let's just pray, and then we can uh, debrief and head off to worship. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for uh, all that it teaches us. We thank you so much um, that there's a guide available to us, that we're not left to stumble around in blindness and darkness and and fall into pits and get ourselves hurt, Lord, but that you offer us a better alternative, that you give us someone to follow after who we can really lay the foundation of our life on. Lord, I pray that everybody in here would be committed to following after him. Lord, if there's anyone who's still walking in spiritual blindness, Lord, would you convict them would you help the church here to, to come around them and to, uh, to show them the way to healing? 
Um, Lord, would you, would you save them? Would you restore their sight? And, and would you help us all to be sanctified and to follow after you with reckless abandon? I, that's my prayer today, and we pray it in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much, Andrew. And so as we want to do um, each week, just to be responsible to